This episode is a case about a missing child, and there is brief discussion of physical and sexual abuse in the episode. Listener discretion is advised. Corinne Leanne Erstad was just five years old when she walked out her front door and disappeared in a matter of minutes. Though a suspect was identified early on and a sensational trial followed, Corinne has remained missing for the last 28 years. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Today we are going to be talking about the disappearance of five-year-old Corinne Erstad, whose case is officially unsolved in spite of a solid suspect being identified early on. Corinne was born in February 1987 to Mona and James Erstad. They were a very young couple, with Mona being just 20 years old and James being 24. Plus, they already had two kids together who were one and two years old when Corinne was born. When Corinne was still an infant, Mona and James placed her and her brothers with their pastor's family while they both sought inpatient treatment. James was in the hospital for two weeks to deal with severe depression, and Mona was in for 50 days for drug and alcohol dependency treatment. However, the three tiny kids soon overwhelmed the pastor and his family. But Mona and James were not yet in a position to take custody back. So the couple contacted social services to seek temporary foster placement for the kids. The kids did spend time with foster families, but at the initiation of their parents, not the state. In 1988, Mona and James were separated pending their divorce when Mona regained custody of the kids. And aside from a stomach issue Corinne had as an infant that did require some medical intervention, she and her brothers appeared to be happy and healthy in Mona's care. Because the children had been in foster care, Mona had a social worker who helped teach her about parenting, things like how to use timeouts instead of spankings, and just general parenting skills, skills that went a long way for a young single mother with three little kids. Parenting three kids who are all so little is so hard, and I can't imagine doing it while also fighting to stay sober. So thank goodness for social workers. In 1988 or 89, Mona met Steve Williams through a mutual friend named Bob Guevara. The two hit it off and soon married. Mona was 23 and Steve was 19, so again, still so young to be parents. And I say that as someone who was a relatively young parent. In 1990, the kids were visiting with their father, James, 
when he got angry at one of Corinne's brothers. James grabbed the little boy's leg and he twisted it, causing damage to the four-year-old's knee ligaments. He was arrested and eventually pleaded guilty to misdemeanor assault. This was the only documented abuse in the family, and I am pointing it out because the family's parenting does come up later. In June 1992, the family was living in Invergrove Heights, Minnesota, which is a nice little city south of St. Paul. On Monday, June 1st, 1992, Mona and Steve were hanging out at home with the kids and running errands throughout the day. Their friend, 24-year-old Bob Guevara, the one who had introduced them, came over. Bob was drinking much of the day by his own admission. Around 7 p.m., Steve left the house to go to band practice, which was about 15 minutes away. Mona had done some laundry that day, so she was carrying the baskets from the car into the house. Bob tried to help her, but by this point, he was drunk. All he really managed to do was spill his drink. Bob followed Mona into Corinne's room chatting away while she started putting Corinne's laundry away in her drawers. Corinne was asleep. She was taking one of those late naps that five-year-olds sometimes take, but she woke up to all this movement in her room. The phone rang, so Mona went into the kitchen to answer it. From where she was in the kitchen, she could see Corinne walk out the front door. It would have been around 7.15-ish, give or take probably 10 minutes. The little girl was wearing a white sundress with a watermelon print, and she was barefoot. A few minutes after Corinne went outside, Bob left to head home. He called back into the house to Mona to say that Corinne was hiding from him behind a neighbor's house. He then got into his van and left. After a couple of minutes, Mona sent the boys outside to check on Corinne. So to set their neighborhood up a little, they lived basically at the intersection of two dead-end roads deep in a residential area, and directly behind their house was Skyview Park. Bob already made a comment that Corinne was behind the house, so it made sense that she had walked over to the playground. But when the boys didn't find Corinne at the park, they and Mona checked with the neighbors and just searched the neighborhood for her. But no one had seen her. After two hours of searching, Mona decided to call the police. The 911 call was logged at 9.32 p.m. The officer who responded found Mona to be upset, but not hysterical. She had obviously been crying, but she was able to convey the information to the officer, and she mentioned that their friend Bob had been over, and he left around the same time she last saw Corinne. The officer asked if Bob might have taken Corinne with him for any reason, and Mona said, maybe, probably not, 
And if he did, certainly not in a nefarious way. But he did leave right after Corinne was last seen, so maybe. Then one of Corinne's brothers said he heard Bob say, get in the van before he left, possibly to Corinne. But it didn't make a lot of sense because why would Bob have taken her anywhere? But this was a lead the police intended to follow up on. Another lead was, of course, James Erstad. Nearly half of all kidnappings are familial. It's when this initial questioning of Mona turned to the possibility of an abduction, that's when she started getting more upset. It was like, as long as they were focusing on Corinne having wandered off somewhere, she could keep it together. But once it got darker than that, she just couldn't. At 10.30, the police officially notified James Erstad of Corinne's disappearance. He hadn't seen her that night, hadn't been in the neighborhood, and reacted the way they would expect a father to. He drove out to Mona's home, and he joined the overnight search. Mona had mobilized pretty much the entire neighborhood by this point. At 10.45, the police arrived out at Bob's mobile home to look to see if Corinne was there. Bob was home with his girlfriend, Christine, and he said he last saw Corinne hiding behind the neighbor's house. But he did agree to let the police look around his trailer. It was full of boxes, dirty dishes piled high, and clothes everywhere. They noted that Bob was very drunk, but nothing they saw jumped out at them, and they left. After they left around 11 p.m., Bob called Mona and Steve. He was really upset about Corinne being missing and wanted to come over to help them search. But his girlfriend, Christine, told him that he was too drunk to drive back out there, which was an accurate assessment. The next day, the police brought Corinne's picture to the neighborhood school in the hopes that some kids playing at the park that evening might recognize her. The park had been pretty crowded at 7.30 that evening, but by the time the police were called at 9.30, most of those people had gone home. This was an attempt to find some of those potential witnesses. A fourth grader came forward and said that he saw Corinne talking to a man and petting the man's dog. This man was driving a van with a tan stripe around it. And it was a van that other neighbors had mentioned seeing. The kid gave a good enough description for a composite sketch of this mystery man. So the police spent the rest of that day trying to track down this lead, and it turned out to be a dead end. They admitted as much to the press, saying that they shouldn't have put so many resources on this one lead so soon. They couldn't even confirm that the girl seen was Corinne, since this kid did not know her personally, and he was just nine or ten years old. He was going off the photo they showed. 
While the police were following up on that lead, though, everyone else was passing out flyers and continuing the neighborhood search for Corinne. Mona found a lot of support from friends, neighbors, and really the whole town as they were looking for her missing daughter. The investigators refocused and regrouped after the creepy van guy didn't pan out as a suspect, and they started looking closer to home. The only person they cleared early on was Mona Williams. Steve Williams, James Erstad, and Bob Guevara all remained persons of interest. And when Bob was told he was a suspect on June 3rd when the police searched his trailer again, he got really upset to the point of not coping. That night, Bob drove to pick up his girlfriend Christine at the Kmart where she worked. While sitting in the car waiting for her to clock out, he wrote a suicide note on the back of Corinne's missing persons flyer. He began writing it in crayon, the only writing utensil he found in her car. Bob actually used four flyers to write this note. The Star Tribune described the note as rambling. Partway through it, he stopped writing. He went into the Kmart and asked Christine for a pen. When he got back to the car and started writing again, he actually wrote in his suicide note, thanks for the pen, I hate writing with crayon. In the note, Bob denied having anything to do with Corinne's disappearance. He said they would someday understand that, but that he had too much pressure. He said he took a bunch of sleeping pills and then listed the people he wanted invited to his funeral. When Christine got to the car after her shift, she saw Bob sitting in the front seat with an empty bottle of pills. He told her that he wanted to sleep forever. Christine did not see the note, so she didn't realize that this was an actual attempt to take his own life. She initially just thought he took a bunch of pills. But when she found the note later on, Bob was fine. He hadn't taken that many pills. So she then thought the whole thing may have just been a bluff. On June 4th, Mona spoke at a news conference making the usual plea that we see with missing kid cases. She spoke directly to Corinne, saying that she loved her, missed her, and wanted her home. That night, which was a Thursday, Bob and Christine checked into a nearby motel under an assumed name. At 2.15 in the morning, which would have technically been Friday, the police executed a search warrant on a storage locker rented by Bob. Inside the storage unit, they found a plastic bag. And in that plastic bag, they found a white sundress with a watermelon print. The dress was wet and had some blood on it. There was also a pair of women's underwear in the bag that had a significant amount of blood on them. At four in the morning, Christine called the police from the motel room and asked them 
what was happening with the investigation. They told her they were about to charge Bob, and she hung up. Having found Corinne's dress and items with blood on them in Bob's storage unit obviously made him a major suspect, and an arrest warrant was issued. At 7.15 in the morning, Bob and Christine were pulled over about an hour north of where they lived. The authorities believe Bob was trying to flee, but he claims he was just going to stay with a relative. Bob was charged with kidnapping and depriving another of parental rights. Christine was also arrested and held on charges of obstructing the legal process, a charge that would eventually be dropped. A warrant was issued to collect biological evidence from Bob, blood, hair, and semen, and to examine him for signs of scrapes and scratches. Bob didn't have any obvious signs of injury, but he did warn them that he may vomit when they took his blood, since he usually had that reaction. And he did, twice. Corinne's family was devastated to hear that Bob had been arrested. He had known Corinne her entire life. He had been friends with her mother, father, and stepfather for years. The family had been telling the police for the last four days since Corinne disappeared that it couldn't be Bob. But then when they heard about the dress and the blood in his storage unit, they were convinced he must have done something to Corinne. And then Mona told the police something that she remembered Corinne had said to her the day she went missing. Corinne nonchalantly mentioned Bob and described him touching her in a way that made Mona's ears perk up. It sounded to her like this touching was sexual. She planned to talk to Steve about it, but between running errands and Bob being around all day, she didn't really have the chance. When Corinne went missing, Mona had forgotten about it since she was focused on her daughter being missing. That is Mona's side of what happened, her side of why she didn't tell the police this sooner. Then some witnesses came forward saying that Bob often slept at the family's home when he would get too drunk to drive. Someone said Bob would sleep in the basement and then sneak up into Corinne's bed later. This information ended up in the arrest affidavit, meaning it became public record. When the papers ran the story, Mona and the family denied it completely. Mona's mother-in-law said that was not something Mona would have allowed And had Bob climbed into Corinne's bed even once, Mona would have flipped out. Bob would never have been allowed over again. Mona went further and said that Bob had never even slept over since they had moved into that particular house. Bob had lived in the same townhouse as Mona years before in 1988, 
where he did rent out a basement room. But he didn't live there for very long before he was evicted for not paying rent. And at that point, Corinne was still a baby, still in a crib. That was when Bob would, quote-unquote, spend the night because he rented a basement room. It sounds like witness statements were getting kind of blurred together to create a narrative that just didn't happen. Bob wasn't too eager to talk to the police after his arrest, but he had given statements to them before he got arrested to lay out what happened from his point of view on the day Corinne disappeared. And his timeline of the day lined up with Mona's up to the point where he left the house. After he left, he said he started driving to visit a friend who lived over the state line in Wisconsin. But as he drove, he realized that this friend may have moved since he had last seen him. So he decided to turn back around and just go home. Bob then went to his father's house to drop off the van he was driving, and he headed home to Christine, which was just about a mile away. He got home between 9.30 and 10 o'clock, where he stayed for the rest of the night. The police showed up at 10.45 to question him and look for Corinne. But when your alibi is that you were driving around alone and then you decided not to stop at your friend's house and you turned around instead and nobody really knows where you were, that's not much of an alibi. In the end, Bob had about an hour and a half to two hours that he could not really account for. In speaking with Christine, she had a little bit to add to this timeline. She said that the day after Corinne went missing, Bob asked to borrow her car so he could move some boxes from their trailer into his storage unit. She told him he could, but then when he left in her car, he hadn't taken any boxes with him. Bob was gone for an hour and a half, and when he came back, he told Christine that he was sick. He had thrown up three times. Of course, he had been drinking heavily the night before and could have been sick from that. But remember, Bob also threw up during his blood draw because of a reaction he has to the sight of blood. Bob then went to a court date he had over a domestic violence incident where he was accused of hitting Christine. The charges were dismissed, and then he went to Steve and Mona's house to help pass out Corinne's missing person flyers. The next day on July 3rd, Christine said Bob was running some laundry, and when she asked to add something to the load, he snapped at her and refused. A blanket was taken from the washer during the search of the trailer, and this blanket had some forensic evidence on it, which we'll get to. So the theory here is that Bob was washing items related to the kidnapping, and didn't want Christine to see it. Two days after this, Bob was arrested. The next day, on June 6th, another search was conducted to look for Corinne. This time, they were following up on a lead from a witness who said she saw Bob near the woods surrounding a small lake outside of St. Paul. Using a tracking dog, 
They gave this dog Bob's scent from some of his clothes. The bloodhound led them from where the witness saw Bob straight down to the lake. So investigators then got some of Corinne's things and repeated the exercise, and the dog went down to the same exact spot. However, nothing was found at this lake, and it's not a big lake. It's practically in someone's backyard. So they were pretty confident that if there was something to find, they would have found it. But the investigators did believe the witness and the dogs. They think that whatever was at the lake, Bob went back for later and moved it again. They're working with the assumption that Corinne wasn't just missing, but had been killed, especially having found her clothes with blood on them. So whether Bob had hid evidence at the lake or possibly Corinne's body, they do believe he left something there temporarily. After his arrest, Bob made a call to Christine's sister. He was looking to get in touch with Christine. The sister asked him about some bloodstains that were found in the van that were reported in the press. There was a smear on a seat and on a rear interior panel. She claimed Bob told her that there was no way they found that evidence in the van because he had power washed the entire thing. The police believe the van was used in the kidnapping, but not the scene of the murder. They believe the murder occurred at the trailer. One reason was that the underwear found with Corinne's dress belonged to Christine. She kept it in a dresser drawer. The police believe that Corinne was sexually assaulted, and Bob grabbed for whatever he could find to stop her from bleeding. Because the trailer was the potential scene of the crime, Christine could not stay there. But she did need to get her things, so with a police escort, she was allowed to pack up some of her clothing and various items on June 10th. While she was getting things from the back bedroom in the trailer, she found a blood-stained paper towel in the closet under some other stuff. She gave it over immediately to the police, and it was put with the rest of the evidence to be processed. We are in 1992, so we do have DNA technology, and we can amplify small amounts using PCR. But you still need a decent amount of blood to test because blood is not actually that great of a source of DNA if you only have a small amount. DNA is only found in white blood cells. Red blood cells, platelets, and plasma, which are the other three parts of your blood, do not have DNA. And red blood cells outnumber white blood cells by 600 to 1. So you're looking for one part of one type of cell in the sample of blood. I'm going to hold off walking through the physical evidence for another couple of minutes because there was a slight wrench thrown into this case before they even got the test results back. On June 16th, just over two weeks since Corinne went missing, a woman named Beth Williamson got a phone message. It was a little girl who said, this is Corinne Erstad. Tell my mommy I'm okay. Beth, of course, called the police. She had no connection to this case. 
As far as I can tell, she did not know anyone involved, and it doesn't make sense why Corinne or Corinne's kidnapper would call her. Mona, Steve, James, and even Corinne's preschool teacher listened to it, and all four said it did not sound like her. So the police chalked this up to a hoax. But as is the law, the tape was turned over to Bob's defense as exculpatory evidence. In spite of having no body, the state was moving ahead. Up to this point, Minnesota had not had a successful no-body murder case prosecuted. The only other attempt ended in an acquittal for the defendant. But with Corinne's dress showing up in Bob's storage locker, the state felt pretty confident about taking this one to trial. And Bob's kidnapping charge turned into a kidnapping, rape, and murder case. But of course, the state would feel a whole lot more confident if they had Corinne's body. In the eight months between when Corinne went missing and Bob went to trial, a number of searches were conducted. They dragged the nearby Mississippi River, where they found a bundle of rocks duct taped together like a homemade weight. That seemed promising, but it yielded nothing. They searched the shoreline where a cadaver dog hit. It was also near a place a witness saw a vehicle that matched Bob's. Another promising lead, it also went nowhere. They also searched the landfill where the dumpster at the storage unit was dumped. This dumpster had been emptied on June 2nd, the day after the disappearance, but before the police even knew the storage locker was going to be a big part of the case. Again, they found nothing. But even with no body, this state's case was bolstered by the physical evidence. Usually, no-body cases don't have a ton of forensic evidence, but this one did. Let's start with the blood evidence. The first issue they had to overcome was that they didn't actually have Corinne's DNA to compare. So this was a bit of a process. They did find some blood on Corinne's comforter in her bedroom. Her mom said it was from when she scraped her elbow, but it's impossible to prove that was definitely her blood. So what they did was they ran Mona and James's DNA, and then they ran everything against them to see if the blood was consistent with one of their children. And then they would compare it to Corinne's brother's DNA to rule them out. Once they were ruled out, there was only one person left whose DNA this could be, and of course, that's Corinne. This was a roundabout but logical process. Let's start with what they found in Bob's trailer. Corinne's blood was found on the leg of a pair of sweatpants that were Bob's. It was found on a blanket and on that paper towel from the closet. From the storage unit... There was blood on the sundress, the underwear, a towel, a t-shirt, a baby wipe, and a shower curtain. The plastic bag that held the underwear and dress had Bob's fingerprints on it. I do want to say that not all the samples of blood on these items were large enough to test, but those that were large enough matched a child of Mona and James, so obviously it was Corinne. And this included the blood on a pair of Christine's underwear. 
The underwear also had a pubic hair that was consistent with Bob. Now, we talked about hair analysis in my recent episode on Sharon Bald Eagle. I never know which episodes people have heard before and which ones they haven't. I don't want to repeat things and bore my every episode listeners. So I'll just say, if you want the details and the statistics and the numbers on the hair analysis, go listen to that episode. But the basic gist is that hair analysis is not a fingerprint. It is not DNA. It can include or exclude someone, but can't necessarily identify them. With that disclaimer out of the way, there was also a hair consistent with Corinne found on the blanket in Bob's washing machine. They used hair from her hairbrush to compare. I'm purposely going to say compare and not the word match because match implies a level of certainty that cannot exist here. Another important hair analysis was done on Corinne's dress. On the strap of her dress were two strands consistent with her hair, which isn't really surprising since it's her dress. But there was a third hair tangled in, and it was consistent with Bob. We do have a more narrow pool of people the hair could have come from in this case, than we would have in general because Bob's hair was very unusual in color and characteristics. The forensic analyst who did this comparison said that he had never seen hair like this before. But I do want to go back real quick to the shower curtain I mentioned that had blood on it. This wasn't initially processed with everything else. The prosecutor was watching the videotape of the search of the storage unit, and he saw it. He thought it was a little odd. Who stores an old shower curtain? They literally cost $2 to replace. So he asked the lab to test it. Christine identified the shower curtain as one they had in the trailer. When tested, a mixed sample of blood and semen was found. Mixed DNA was hard to test back in the early 1990s, so the results weren't as definitive, but it was very likely Bob semen and very likely Corinne's blood. They theorized that Bob used the shower curtain when moving Corinne's body, and Bob hid the shower curtain and all this other evidence in his storage unit until the heat was off and he could dispose of it. This was a lot of evidence against Bob, even without Corinne's body. But there were a few pretrial motions that went against the state here. The judge would not allow one of the witnesses to testify. This was the woman who saw Bob come out of the woods where dogs later tracked Bob and Corinne's scents. There was something in the way the lineup was done that wasn't okay, and the judge threw it out. The judge also did allow in that tape-recorded phone call of a little girl saying, I'm Corinne Erstad, into evidence, which I'm just going to say I don't get. I understand a fair trial and wanting the jury to hear as much as possible, but they couldn't find anyone who thought the tape sounded like Corinne. It's so odd to me that he allowed an obvious hoax in at trial. The state did call witnesses to say this didn't sound like Corinne. 
But the biggest blow to the state was the limits the judge put on the testimony surrounding the DNA. It was a decision that was supported by case law in Minnesota at the time. It's my understanding this has since changed, but basically, at the time, experts were not allowed to testify to the probability of a DNA match. They could only say it was their expert opinion that it matched. It absolutely weakened the impact of this evidence, making it much easier for the defense to counter since it was just an expert's opinion that it matched. They weren't allowed to truly define what that meant. Even so, the bulk of the DNA evidence in this case would be hard for the defense to overcome, and that Corinne's dress was found in Bob's storage locker. So the defense decided not to argue that all of this evidence was shaky DNA matches. They conceded that it was Corinne's blood on some of these items, but they told the jury that the evidence was actually planted, and the person they pointed the finger at was Corinne's mother, Mona. This was a bold strategy. They were openly attacking a grieving mother, and that could have backfired big time. On the other hand, the U.S. system is that juries must come back with a unanimous verdict, so they only had to convince one juror to get a hung jury. Bob's defense attorney, Anthony Torres, opened his case by painting Mona as an abusive and scheming welfare queen who was just out to make some money. He said she talked to Bob weeks before Corinne's disappearance. Mona had wanted him to help her get into selling drugs. Then she told Bob she couldn't afford her kids, so she might sell one of them instead. Torres also said that Bob and Mona were having an affair and even had sex in Corinne's bed on the day Corinne went missing, which would give Mona access to some of his biological material, which she could then plant. One thing Torres pointed to was a newspaper article about Corinne's disappearance that was on the family's coffee table. A witness had been in the house and noted that Corinne's face had been crossed out in this article. Taurus accused Mona of doing this, but Mona gave the very reasonable explanation that one of the boys had done it. He was hurting and sad and angry over his sister being missing, and the article had upset him. We end up getting the bulk of the defense, not through this opening statement, but through Bob's testimony. Another bold strategy, they put the defendant on the stand. And now Bob had a chance to explain himself. He had a new alibi to begin with. Rather than driving to a friend's house and turning around, he testified he was actually out buying cocaine in the parking lot of a church from some guy named Rich, whose street name was Snake Eyes. Bob didn't tell the police this, since obviously it was illegal. Bob also reiterated the story that his attorney had already told about Mona wanting to sell a child, and he added that Mona was more interested in partying than she ever was in her children. 
He said she also mentioned that she might be able to set up a kidnapping for ransom and get her father-in-law to pay that ransom out. Bob said he was willing to help her get into the drug business, but then when she started talking about involving her children in some type of money-making scheme, he backed out. He painted Mona as neglectful and potentially abusive, though we have seen no proof of either of these claims. Bob testified that a couple of weeks after Mona first brought up selling a kid, he asked her about it again. This was around the time Corinne disappeared, if not the very day. Mona told him she had it taken care of. Then Bob told the jury that shortly before he left the house on June 1st, four men arrived. Mona then asked him if she could leave some things in his storage unit, stolen stuff, that she needed to stash until she could sell it. He said sure, in exchange for a gun and some pot. He then gave Mona the key and the directions to the unit before leaving. This testimony established two key things. One, the alternative suspects in the kidnapping, bringing in these four men. And two, Mona had a key to Bob's storage unit, and she knew where it was so she could plant evidence later. On cross-examination, the state hammered Bob on the inconsistencies in his story, like why did he help look for Corinne if he knew the whole thing was a hoax? Bob claimed it's because he didn't realize it was a hoax. He hadn't put two and two together until after his arrest. As for most of the questions from the state, however, Bob just answered, I don't know, I don't understand, and I don't recall. Those were his answers over 100 times. After Bob left the stand, the defense then called some of the men Bob claimed were at the trailer that night. Of the four men, Bob named three of them. He said the fourth guy was just someone he didn't know. But the men's DNA and prints didn't match any of the evidence, and one of the guys didn't even know Mona or Steve. Another was a neighbor who hadn't been at the house until he went over the next day to help search. That's when he encountered Bob. To me, this story of Mona's involvement seems to be based on absolutely nothing. Yet people bought into it. They bought into this welfare queen trope. And the family was actually harassed when they were out and about in town with people confronting them, asking what they did to Corinne. The only documented incident of abuse with any of the children was James against one of the boys from a few years before. But because a guy who was caught with Corinne's blood on his belongings, he said Mona did it, therefore she was treated like garbage. It's mind-blowing to me. The defense fed into people's biases against young mothers on welfare. And to give all you young ones a history lesson, this issue was front and center in the early 90s. It was a massive focus of the presidential election in 92. Bill Clinton made welfare reform one of his biggest campaign promises. 
So when Bob's trial rolled around in early 1993, this was a topic everyone was familiar with and had spent months and months hearing about. They were primed to buy into the stereotype. And when the jury took the case, they deliberated for 52 hours before finding Bob not guilty on all of the charges. This verdict shocked everyone. This trial happened 27 years ago, and I guarantee some people are still looking back and are still shocked at the verdict. With Bob's semen and Corinne's blood on items in Bob's trailer and storage unit, how in the world was he found not guilty? One juror who spoke said that most of them believed Bob was guilty of something in relation to Corinne's disappearance, but without a body and with inconsistent witnesses and investigators not following up on other leads, they couldn't say it beyond a reasonable doubt. I cannot help but think of another no-body case I covered, Heidi Allen, and investigators in that case could only dream of having this much evidence. This case seems one where the forensic evidence was so insurmountable, even without a body. But apparently, the jury felt differently. And we can't say they didn't take their time with it after 52 hours of deliberation. The loss of Corinne, coupled with the lack of justice, just devastated this family. They have struggled over the years, including her brothers, who were little kids experiencing an incredible trauma. Bob initially left Minnesota but later moved back, and running into him in the area a couple of times was too much for Mona. She eventually left the state. Corinne's case has made the news on the big anniversaries, but also twice related to other arrests, arrests of Bob's brothers. In 2013, Bob's brother Peter was busted for child porn. He had images of children from ages 6 to 12. Investigators hoped there would be some pressure applied here that might help get some answers, maybe even lead them to Corinne's remains. Bob was safe from prosecution. He couldn't be tried again. But they did hope they could still bring Corinne home for a burial and maybe get some more answers of what exactly happened. But in the end, Peter pleaded guilty without disclosing any information about Corinne, if he even had any to provide, which is debatable. Then in 2015, a bail bondsman went to a house to look for a fugitive in an unrelated case. Living in the home was Bob's brother, Jerry. Jerry had initially been arrested shortly after Corinne's disappearance for aiding and abetting his brother, but the charges were dropped. Again, it appeared that arrest had been an attempt to put some pressure on Bob, which we know didn't work. Anyway, this bondsman entered the home, and he found a large number of children there, all without beds. They were in various stages of dress. No one appeared to have any shoes and the house was filthy. There was not enough food, and the food that was there was spoiled. The bondsman reported this, worried about the children's welfare. When it was investigated, someone noticed that the woman living there, a 31-year-old we will call Nicole, 
looked like the age progression of Corinne Erstad. There was a moment where they thought they might have a J.C. Dugard situation. But the woman was not Corinne. She was the mother of 52-year-old Jerry's nine children. Two of the children were conceived when she was underage, ages 16 and 17, while Jerry was in his late 30s. The age of consent in Minnesota is 16, unless the older individual is in an authoritative role over the minor, like a police officer or a teacher. In that case, the age of consent raises to 18. In this case, Jerry was her stepfather. Yes, Jerry, Bob's brother, had nine children with his stepdaughter. Jerry was arrested and eventually convicted of third-degree criminal sexual conduct. Nicole, though she was a victim in Jerry's case, was also arrested and charged with child abuse against the children living in the home. But if authorities hoped the pressure in Jerry's case would lead to answers, they were once again disappointed. And if any member of the Guevara family knows anything, it doesn't appear they will ever disclose it. And for the Erstad family, they had Corinne declared dead after the trial. Many years after her disappearance, her father, James, looking back on life without his daughter, said that losing a child is like having a chunk out of your leg. You learn to live with it. You eventually stop thinking about it every second of every day. But you will always walk with a limp, and you will always have a piece of yourself missing. 